He was a god of water, surging, sloshing, splurting water, god of jubilance and glee. The horse and rider hurled into the sea. He was a god of bread, falling, flitting, floating bread, god of manna and meat, because we had cried for something to eat. We loved this god of water and bread. We understood water. You can channel and contain water. We understood bread. You can shape and form bread. But then the god of water and bread brought us to a violent, fiery mountain. A mountain of thunder and lightning, glowering clouds and billowing smoke, and we were terrified. We begged for reprieve. We begged for something less fearsome. We begged for a thing we could touch and taste and hold. And whatever it was, we needed it now. Aaron relented and gave us relief. A gold statue that we could shape and form, touch and hold. And we left behind that mysterious, frightening God who could not be contained or controlled. Coming. Okay. Technical difficulties. Thank you. Oh, everybody needs a Shana in their life. She's just there for you when you need her. Hello, everybody. Good morning. Thank you to the creative team for that awesome video. That is just powerful. <clears throat> I'm a little out of breath still. We all need a good pulse check, I think, at this point. 400 something. As Shana said, uh, my name's Grace, and my husband and I have been coming here for a couple years. Very grateful to be a part of this community. Um, it's touched me in so many ways, and many of you probably feel the same way. Um, at the refuge, that has been a, a great blessing to me a few years ago when I got to help co-lead a group there. And then also, um, just Greg and his teachings, his books, I started picking them up when I was in high school, and I am just so grateful for the breath of fresh air, the voice that he is in the kingdom, and how much that has challenged and helped my faith. I'm just grateful for that he, is, he exists and he's out there, um, <laughs> right? So, so any way that I can give back, I'm honored to do so. So thank you for letting me come, come speak with you. Um, in other news, we have two little girls. Um, they're three and one. You may have noticed them roaming in the lobby sometimes. They're pasty white ginger children. They look nothing like me. We are also expecting a third child, actually. So that's exciting. I wanted to share because that's why I have something in my mouth right now. I've been feeling a little queasy, a little nauseous. So if something weird goes on up here, just know like you're not gonna get sick. You're also not gonna get pregnant. That's not how it happens. That's not how it works. Just ask your mom about it. Um, but I just want to give you a heads up. Pray for me. And this is where I'm supposed to begin. God is good. He is with us. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that your arms are open wide. Your arms are open wide. I don't know that you're capable of crossing your arms. I don't know. Because Jesus tells us a story of you that is of perfect love, the love that we all long for, the love we all strive after. We get glimpses of it in our own lives, but God, you're the one true source. So bless us now, Holy Spirit. Would you cleanse our minds? Cleanse our hearts of anything in them that is not helping us right now and that is getting in the way of believing that you love us because you love us because you love us because you love us because you love us. 
Remove those barriers, Lord. And Holy Spirit, we need your help to see what we cannot see and to move towards the person of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so we are continuing this sermon series called Long Story Short. If you've been with us, you may know that we are trying to go through the entirety of the Bible in one summer. And if you're new to the Bible, the Bible is not just one book. It is a book of books. It is all contained in one book. But there are 66 books in the Bible written by many different authors, many different genres, types of writing. Um, but they're all telling the story of God and humanity. And so we're looking at that, that huge story in a short period of time with two themes, covenant and kingdom. And those two words are very rich, and we could spend a lot of time talking about them. But the way that we're kind of looking at those two, two words is in the two words, relationship and responsibility. So covenant is our relationship word. Covenant means to become one. That's actually what that word means. So it's how we become one with God and how we become one with one another. That's kind of an old ancient word that we don't use a lot anymore, but it is so rich with the way that you really do want to be in relationship with someone. The true way that you want to become one with someone. And then kingdom is where that covenant plays out. Kingdom is where our relationship, our oneness with God, and our oneness with one another plays out. What that looks like and how it looks different than other kingdoms of the world, right? So these themes are very strong in scripture and um, that's why we want to choose those to look through the entirety of scripture. And I have good news. We have officially made it through one book of the Bible. We are done with Genesis. <laughs> Woo! It's July and we only have 65 to go, so I think we're right on track. Um, I am going to be picking up in Exodus, which is the second book of the Bible. Um, the first five books of the Bible, most people agree Moses wrote, or they believe that Moses wrote them. Um, so Exodus, also written by Moses, and it's actually the story of Moses, kind of an autobiography for him, in, in a sense. And we're picking up on that story and um, the rise of Moses, who he is, how he's a part of this nation of Israel that has a special call by God to bring good news and blessing to the earth. And Moses has just been used by God to lead the Israelites, uh, these, this people, out of captivity from the Egyptians. So they've made it out of Pharaoh's um, enslavement. They made it through the Red Sea. They've wandered through the wilderness. And now we find them at the base of this mountain, Mount Sinai, as we saw in the video. It's a significant mountain in biblical history. Um, it's a special place. And this is where we are going to pick up. And it's in Exodus 19. I'm going to be just kind of summarizing a lot of this for you. So if you'd like to look up Bible references, you can try to follow along right now starting in Exodus 19, or you can just write down those references and look them up later if you'd like to. Um, so in Exodus 19, God makes this proclamation to Moses. They're all hanging out at Mount Sinai, and God says, I'm going to make a covenant with you. Moses, tell the Israelites, I'm going to make a covenant with them and with you, and I'm going to make you my true possession. If you fulfill and obey this covenant and all of its commands, I'll make you my possession, and I will make a kingdom. I'm going to make a kingdom of priests. This is interesting. Those two words are very present in this particular passage. And this is the first time we hear God speak of a kingdom that he wants to create. So he wants to make a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, he says. He wants to set the Israelites apart. And he wants to teach them how to be set apart, different than the deity idol-worshiping gods around, or idol-worshiping tribes around them and cultures around them. He doesn't want them to be like those cultures. So then he proceeds to give them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. And he goes through that list, and that's part of this covenant 
these stipulations and these conditions. Here's the commandments you need to fulfill to keep my covenant. I'm not going to list all the Ten Commandments to you, but I'll say the first two because they're important to this story in particular. First one, you shall have no other gods before me. Second one, don't make any graven images, any images of anything that you see on earth or in heaven. And then, at the end of all the Ten Commandments, God adds a little, uh, just kind of like an add-on of the Ten Commandments I've already been given. He's like, one more thing about that whole don't make any images thing. Don't make them out of silver or gold. Don't make anything out of silver or gold or any materials that you find on earth. So file that one away. See where this is going. If you know this story, um, then you know that Moses goes up the mountain and he has this ongoing interaction with God. It says he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, hopefully taking great notes because God gives him a lot of laws and stipulations Ways that the priests will make a tabernacle, ways that they'll dress, very, very detailed instructions. And the Sinai Covenant is not just the Ten Commandments, it's including the 600 plus laws that we know and Jews know as the Torah. Or sometimes you'll hear the phrase, the law. If you hear that phrase, it's referring to this covenant and all 600 plus laws that come even beyond the book of Exodus. So if you look in, the, in beyond Exodus, Le, um, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's more laws that come there, and they're part of this covenant. So that's kind of what this is referring to as the whole, the law. So Moses is up there, you know, writing down whatever God's saying. God's also, it says, writing down on two stone tablets um, what he's saying to Moses. Meanwhile, down below, the Israelites are just kind of waiting around. They're waiting to see what's going to happen here. They were told to wait at the bottom, including Aaron, Moses' brother. And they're kind of twiddling their thumbs, and we pick up in Exodus 32, this interesting little story that happens here. And the first six verses really give you a synopsis of it. The Israelites say to Aaron, Aaron, we don't know what's happened to this Moses guy. Actually, one translation literally says, we don't know what's become of this Moses fellow. Where is he? We don't know where he is. We have no idea how long this is going to take. Um, you know, the one who brought us out of Egypt, that one. We don't know where he is or how long this is going to take. He could be dead for all we know. It's essentially what they're saying. Get up and make for us gods that will go before us. Get up, make for us gods that will go before us. And I think this is hilarious because Aaron does not miss a beat. Like next verse, he's like, all right, bring me all your jewelry. Like immediately, if there's no discussion, that's what Aaron sounds like. He's got a real weird voice. Like, okay, bring me your jewelry. And uh, I've had blueprints for weeks on this thing. I've been waiting for someone to ask me about it. But it is really odd. I'm sure there was a conversation in there that we didn't get to see. We're here. But I like to think he just goes right into it. And he does. He collects all the jewelry. He melts it down. And he makes a calf. He doesn't even say, what do you think we should make? Should we make a calf? Should we make something else? Cool, an elephant? Nope. Just he's got the idea. He does it. They are ecstatic. Now they have something to worship, something to follow. They bring all these burnt offerings to this thing. They're celebrating. They are having the time of their lives. They're just pumped. And they, it even says they, they eat and drink and celebrate, and they rise up and play. They're so relieved to have something in front of them. And they're kind of an easy target. If you've heard this story before, the Israelites in this specific story become a very easy target for us to judge and make fun of because it's so blatantly disobedient to the commands that were just given. It is like the most toddler-like behavior in the Bible, probably. <laughs> no, probably not. There's probably more. Like my 18-month-old. It's like... 
you tell them, you, you straight up tell them something not to do and then they just like immediately do the opposite. It's like, is it because I said not to that you did it? My 18 month old, I caught her throwing ponytail holders into our toilet. And I was like, oh, Mabel, no, no, we don't want to throw anything in the toilet. Like, yucky, you can throw it. I was like, oh, this is a good idea. You can throw it in the bathtub, you know? Like, it's empty. I'm giving her something else to do, you know? It's like, ah, that's a great idea. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, yucky. I was like, nothing goes in the toilet. She's like, okay, okay, yeah, yucky. Then she's throwing them in the bathtub. I'm like, all right, cool. And then 15 minutes later, my older daughter is like, oh, no, mommy. Mabel threw the stuffed animal in the toilet. It's covered in pee. It's like, oh no. Clearly we don't flush our toilet in our house, I guess. I don't know why there was pee in the toilet. If it's yellow, let it mellow. That's why. Anyway, even though it is sort of ridiculous, the the Israelites' behavior in this specific story is very toddler-like. It is like kind of mind-blowing how quickly They disobeyed the direct command and very specific instructions of what not to do here. I think we can all sadly relate to them. They're also sadly the perfect picture of how quickly we panic and take things into our own hands because it is so hard for us. It is so hard for us to wait and to believe that God's still doing something when we don't see it. I know what it's like to get impatient and build an idol with my own hands. I come from a family of four kids, two boys, two girls. My dad's a pastor, my mom's a nurse, and very loving family, we're all super close. I'm grateful to say that we have great relationships and love each other, Um, and I'm very close, especially with my youngest brother, Jude. I'm the third, he's the fourth in my family. He's like my twin, sometimes I think we should have been born twins, because we're just so similar, we're very weird, we have similar senses of humor. And I was a groomsman in his wedding. He would have been a bridesman in my wedding if I had had a wedding party. Um, But we're just always been close, kindred spirits. We we like impromptu do rap musicals when we're together. We just have all these weird characters we do. I don't even know. I I can't explain it. You guys, I don't even know. And accidentally, one year when I was in eighth grade and he was in sixth grade, we accidentally recorded over the Christmas video from the year before. There's like, you know, videotapes, like you can put them in the like huge camera and like record over them back in the day. So we had no idea there's something on there. We're like, oh, this will be great. We record over it. We had no idea we were recording over this like precious Christmas time that was filmed in our family. So then that year, my family's gathered to, and they're like, we should have watched the Christmas video from the year before. My grandpa and grandma are there, aunts and uncles, cousins. We pop in this video and it's me and Jude. Like it's three different things. We're we're performing, well, first, <laughs> thank you. It's us, very serious, committed actors, uh, British people, like it's a British baking, sh- British cooking show. Long before the British baking show ever happened. The Great British Baking Show stole our, all our material, that's what I think. But yeah, we are very committed with our accents and all that stuff. Then it transitions into this incredible rendition of us performing Will Smith's Just the Two of Us. Just the two of us. We can make, and we are so into it, you guys. We are just committed, <laughs> top to bottom. We just think we are so cool. Everything we're doing, we like have our own props and all this stuff in the music video. We just, we all, we have our own parts. And so the family's just watching this, like, what is going on? Like, what happened to Christmas from last year? 
Then it like weirdly transitioned into us playing with Playmobiles, like those little Lego weird things, for way too long. I mean, it's just so boring. Eventually, people just get up and leave. My grandpa's just like, just shut it, just shut it down. It's, I can't do this. I can't, I just, I can't talk about it. So I still stand by that, that cover that we did of just the two of us. I got to find that somewhere. I, I promise you, it was good. It was good. But the thing about Jude is he's been an addict since he was 11 years old. He started drinking at a very young age for many different reasons. Um, and I knew about it pretty early on. I was probably one of the first people to find out. And um, I, I was scared then. I was scared to see him go down this road so early. And I didn't really know what it all meant. But I, was, I just remember being scared, knowing that all the, kind of the people he was hanging out with and different things he was into. But I don't think any of us knew how bad it was getting. I think we all feared it, but we were kind of in denial and didn't really want to notice. And then, over time, it's hard not to notice when someone's spiraling down. And we all knew that it was getting worse and worse. And then this amazing thing happened. Sometime in his early 20s, he had this miraculous turnaround. He went to rehab and then had already relapsed. But then he kind of encountered God in this really amazing way through an inner healing prayer session. And he really had this transformation that we had not yet seen in his life. And we were like, this is amazing. This is the thing we've been praying for for Jude. He almost lost his life two different times. There were so many crazy things that had happened. And we were just all marveling at the miracle of his change. He was sober. He got married. He had a baby, his first baby. And then he and I, at the same time, started to feel called to go to seminary, which was a big shock to most people in our family. I think we were the two least likely siblings that would have gone. Um, so it was really amazing. I was just, we were so excited to be in seminary together and, um, and we would just joke all the time in class and have so much fun together. And, and then after I graduated from seminary, we, we took a job together at a church in Phoenix. We convinced this church to hire both of us for, for one job and they created a second job. So they hired this brother, sister, pastor, <laughs> staff, these two staff members, and my husband and I moved in with his, his wife and he and his, his first daughter, and then he eventually had a son. And so we were living in community with them, and he had about two years of sobriety in there because he relapsed not long after we were in Phoenix. And it was so devastating because the youth group that he was leading had grown like three times. He's just so incredibly relatable, so good at drawing people into the person of Jesus and using his story to do that. And people just love him. And it, it was so shocking to these kids. They were just devastated, obviously. I took over his job. So I was working my job and his job. And I was devastated going through my own depression um, about what Jude was facing and what this means for his family. Now he's got kids. Now he's got a wife. This is different. It's still... My fears played out, but it's, it's even worse. <clears throat> it's been about four or five years now since his relapse in Phoenix, and he is currently in his 13th treatment center. He has since just spiraled down, 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 down. It has gotten worse and worse and worse and worse. He has since lost his wife, lost his kids, and every person in our family is not currently in a relationship with him or communicating with him because the abuse, his volatility, his ability to manipulate has gotten so deep and so complex and messed with us so much 
that we've had to back off, and our family never thought we would be here. We never thought we'd be like this, this kind of family that has a family member estranged from the family. What I didn't see was how much I was letting this person completely take over my life. Answering every phone call, because every phone call from Jude was an emergency. He had survived two overdose, attempted suicides. He used suicide to threaten our family, to try to get him to do things. Um, every phone call was a crisis. You were always in complete fear. What's, what's going to happen when you see Jude's name on your phone? What is this going to be? I would cover for him in seminary. I would do so many, and his job, I'd do so many things for him, and I was so blind to see that I was being manipulated. I share these details to show you how deep my enmeshment with my brother goes and how blind I was for so many years to see the golden calf I was molding for myself. See, when your life is built around an idol, it means you're putting your trust, your faith, and your security in something other than God. And as long as you have that idol, you only have two options. You will either despair and become immobile because you're so depressed, because your idol's not fixing things, or you will spring into action and control everything. And I would do one of those two things at any given time in my life. Because I didn't want Jude to die, and I wanted his precious kids to have a dad, and I wanted his saintly life, his saintly wife at that time, to have a normal life. But actually, in all my controlling or despairing, I was just making myself more stressed, more fearful, more anxious. See, when we focus on external things to comfort us or save us or restore us, it's no different than taking the law and making it our savior. Because even if those things are good things, they can become our idols. Taking care of your brother or your son or your wife or your daughter or whoever is a good thing. But at some point, the enemy can use it as a means to, to make you into a person you were not supposed to be to make you obsess and control and be full of fear for what could happen. At some point, our control starts to control us and we will die under its grip. Even our obsession with our own or someone else's healing can become our golden calf. Jesus berates the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders of his time, the ones who knew the law the best. He berates them in Matthew 23 for doing this very thing. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you are like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you appear beautiful, but on the inside, you are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. He also says, you only clean the outside of the cup. Clean the inside. Clean the inside so the outside can be cleaned too. Whitewashed tombs and cleaning the outside is controlling as much as we can to change our circumstances for the better. It's worshiping the God of circumstance. If only I could get that job, then I'd be okay. If only I could get that car, then I'd finally be okay. If only I could get married, finally I'd be okay. If only I could end my marriage, finally I could be okay. Hopefully that's not you. If only she could have this happen to her, then we, our whole family would be okay. If only we could get this part of my job to be better, then then I'd be all right. If I can just research the right combination of, th of things in a rehab for Jude, the right combination of mental health and personality disorder treatment and opioid addiction treatment, and maybe something with like health and food and exercise, if I can get all those pieces together, this will be the right one. 
Number eight, treatment number eight, we were all like, oh, that's it. This guy gets it, the director of this treatment center, he gets Jude. I remember all our family being like, oh yeah, this hasn't, I've never seen this before, this is awesome. And number 10, we're like, oh yeah. Nope, this is different than that one that we thought was great. This one's better, this one's better. We didn't realize it then. What they say in the recovery community is, any program will work if you work it. Any program will work if you work it. It's not about those things. It's about your heart, and Jude has not yet been willing. He has not yet been willing. If I can just format Jude's papers for him in seminary and proofread them, then it'll get him off to the right foot and he won't relapse. He won't be stressed. He won't have too much stress in his life. If I can give him hundreds of dollars over the years just to get him by on these certain moments in his life, then maybe he'll be okay. If I can just give him rides to all of his appointments and call his insurance company and see if they can cover this rehab again. Do you guys see how crazy I was? You may not have an addict in your life, but I bet there's something or someone that causes you to become a crazy, codependent person. I bet you do. (laughs) Just like me. At least I like to think so, right? So I don't feel so crazy. The Pharisees wanted to do everything right and perfect on the outside so that they could go to sleep at night, but I bet they had disturbed sleep. I bet they lived with so much anxiety because Romans 2.12 says, when you live by the law, you are judged by the law. And judgment is not a fun thing to live under. You are living in fear when you're living in judgment. When you're the one controlling everything in your life and trying to make it perfect, you're constantly analyzing, reanalyzing, thinking, and fearing. Paul says in Romans 7 that the law is not sinful in itself. It's not evil. Because if we didn't have it, we wouldn't know what sin is. But then he says something really interesting in verses 10 and 11 in Romans 7. He says, the very commandment that promised life to me proved to be death because sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. What is he saying? Paul is saying he is accusing sin for turning the law into an instrument of death. He's saying sin takes advantage of our human nature and uses these tools, these things that were supposed to be a means to help us live live better, know how to, how to live a holy life, but he twisted into something that becomes our God. Sin twisted into something that becomes our God and beats us over the head. God never intended the Sinai covenant, also known as the Mosaic covenant, to be plan A. It was plan B. It was a covenant of accommodation. God was accommodating what had happened in the world since sin entered. He's like, all right, well, for a little while at least, we're gonna need something to kind of help us out here. But he knew no human could fulfill the law. He didn't expect people to fulfill this. He knew that. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. I can do that. He knew that it could never save us. He knew that we couldn't do it. For example, who's going to fulfill whoever curses his father and mother shall be put to death? Every teenager in the room's like. (laughs) There is a lot of violence in these laws, and I want to acknowledge that for a minute because it It is kind of challenging to read these if you read through any number of them. I just want to remind us that that is not the picture that God gives us of himself in Jesus. A God, God, Jesus is a God who lays down his life for others. And when we come across texts that sound like God himself is the one commanding or doing the violence, we need to conclude, we must conclude, that the ancient 
Authors are projecting an ancient Near East vengeful character onto God. That, God's, that God simply does not match the full revelation of God we have in Jesus. And since God's not going to coerce people into having a true conception of him, like in the garden, he lets Adam and Eve choose their way. God humbly stoops to meet people where they're at and bear their sin and to thereby take on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of somebody else's sin on himself, just as he does on the cross. It's amazing. If you need more info on this or more biblical references, listen to Greg's sermon from last week or better yet, get his book, Cross Vision. But I just wanted to mention that because we need a covenant that can redeem us. We need a covenant that can address our fears And the Bible tells us there's a new covenant in town. This covenant isn't about laws that sin is used against us to make us obsess over our behavior or someone else's behavior or to control our circumstances with it. No, this covenant does not have any of that. It changes us from the inside out because it all relies on the behavior of one man, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.15 says, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The new covenant covers the sins of the first covenant. So all the people who live pre-Jesus can apply his blood to their failures. Isn't that amazing? It redeems plan B and gets us back on plan A. The new covenant is the good news you've been waiting for, and here it is. Here's the good news. You were loved into existence. You were loved into existence, and your life always has been and always will be about love. And that love will prove itself to you over and over and over again in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the one who will show you what that love is like. That's the good news. This is love, John writes. Not that we loved God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Do you know what that's summarizing? It's the greatest commandment. That's summarizing Jesus says, the law and the prophets. That's the law, people. Loving God is part of the law. That's not the gospel. John writes, this is love, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. How I love Jesus. He loved you first. He loved you first. Jesus even gives the good news to the Pharisees at the end of his indictment of them in Matthew 23. This is when he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered you together, your children together, As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. I was not willing to let go of getting my security out of Jude's healing. I was not willing to accept that this was my family's story, and especially not my niece and nephew's story. I was not willing to let God gather me under his wings like a mama hen says, Grace, I love you. Let him go. Let him go. 
See, if we don't believe that Jesus' love is enough to cover both our celebrations and our biggest fears, then what are we doing? What are we doing? Jesus is enough to cover your greatest losses, your greatest fears played out. Play them out, let your mind go there, and ask yourself, is Jesus enough? And hear my voice saying to you, yes, he is. Yes, he is. I lost a dear friend to cancer a few years ago. She was such a powerful light. It was so shocking to all of us to see her light snuffed out. After being in remission for five years, but I remember we all sat there when we got together around her. Her husband, man of great faith, asked us to come pray for her to be risen from the dead. And we believe that. But we cannot obsess for the outcome to be our savior and to be the thing that gives us peace inside. We had to let her go because it wasn't God's will. Jesus is enough in the great pain of your loss, in your greatest fears played out, He covers all my fears of what will happen if Jude never, ever makes it. If Jude's 90 years old and is in his 50th treatment center, Jesus is enough. He's enough. Even after getting hundreds of texts from him in one day, literally, it was so hard for me to stop talking to him. But finally, when I did, my counselor finally convinced me it's time to be... Separate yourself. He had threatened my family. He's, he's not in his right mind. And when I let him go, I felt like, what am I going to do now? My golden calf is getting destroyed. Who am I without that golden calf? Who am I now? What's going to happen when I don't have it? Imagine it's what the Israelites felt like when Moses came down the mountain and just utterly destroyed the calf. What do I, what do, I do? Yet I found such peace, such relief, I found Jesus with me in the midst of not knowing what to do next. Because when we accept the new covenant with Jesus, Jesus' broken, lifeless body goes inside our whitewashed tomb. He goes inside our grave. He becomes the us we were never supposed to be. He kills everything about us that was not supposed to be, the part of us we don't like. The part of us that shouldn't have been here. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. He absorbs the controlling, despairing, panicky me and crucifies it. He enters my tomb and cleanses it and makes the inside as white as snow. So now it's beautiful on the inside. He rises from death's grip on my behalf. He says, I'll do this for you, Grace. Don't go into that grave. I will do it. I will do it for you. I was trying to be him in there. But all it does when humans try to do that is it kills us with no resurrection. But when we let him come into our tomb, we get to rise with him. We get to rise with him. See, if my hope was in the law, I would truly be mourning everything that sin has taken from our family, from my brother, from his family. But my hope is in a king that lays down his perfect, law-fulfilling body so that Jude cannot be removed from his love. Ever. And this king says, everything is on me. So I can breathe and let go of my brother and say, if he should live or die, he is the king's. And no matter how messed up or codependent I become in this, his love still chases me. 
All my nights of depression and agony over my brother's self-destruction is met by love every single time. And his kids are in his love. And my sister-in-law, my former sister-in-law, she has become a sister to me. God has made us so close. There are so many moments of beauty and light in this. The other week at worship, the worship leader here, one of them said, I'm gonna pray that each of you gets a picture of something you're grateful for. And I was holding my three-year-old, and I'm thinking, I'm probably gonna have a picture of my child or both my kids. But instead, Jude popped into my face, into my head. His face popped into my mind, and I, I just started weeping. I have so much to be grateful for. I'm so grateful he's my brother. I'm so grateful he's in my life, even if we're not talking. Because God has us all, and that is the good news. Not that every circumstance gets perfect, not that your body feels good or this feels good or whatever happens, that he is with you. And how is he with you? He gives his own spirit to you. For the, the Bible says, instead of the law, I'm gonna give you a spirit, my spirit. Because the law can't move inside your body and help you live a life you can't live for yourself. The spirit is the, the being that comes and moves in and says, I'll help you when you're desperate. I'll help you when you don't know what to do. I'll help you when you have no idea where to go next. So let's stand up. Amen. If you're willing, stand up. If you're able and willing or want to, stand up as an act of faith and hold out your hands. I want to bless you. with a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit and empowerment to live a life you can't live without him. Lord, I want a life that cannot be explained, that cannot be explained outside of the power of your Holy Spirit, your influence. So I bless each of us now with a fresh baptism of your Holy Spirit. That means you cleanse us. That means you remove the things that are not helping us. You throw those dead bones out of our tombs. You say, get those out of here. Those aren't my life. I didn't put those here. And then you fill us. So I bless you to be filled afresh with his spirit. His spirit leads you into the truth about Jesus. And that truth will set you free. So Lord, would you come and give to each individual what their heart, what their mind, what their life needs right now to get through whatever thing they're facing or even if they're in a, just a peaceful season, to just move even closer to you, Lord. And would you bless them with your love? Help our hearts to receive it, even just a tiny bit more, because it changes us. And it helps us live in a new kingdom, a new kingdom where we're all priests, and we all get, we all get to do the good stuff. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Amen. Go in peace.